Siri. So when to remember, remind me, just stand up and start waving your hands around. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's okay. Jean, where is Marty? Okay. I'm so happy to see you. How are you? I met somebody recently who asked me about you, told me about you. Somebody named Karen. Whose partner is Jureen. Yes. I recently met. And we figured out that we both knew you, or she figured it out. Did she come to Spirit Rock? No, she comes to the Congregation River Shalom where I... I wonder if, um, well, maybe this is it for us this morning. I wonder if people were uh, detained by the Twitter storm that happened this morning. Not a weather storm, a Twitter storm. Uh, and breaking news. I wonder what it would have to be to be really breaking news. What happened? What happened? No, I'm not. There's a little bit Sota Vocho purposely muttering. <laughs> I was on the phone, I was on, a, I, I am one morning a week, and this week it was Wednesday, uh, on the phone with uh, three friends, I think I may have told you, uh, one of my friends is Sharon Salzberg, who's a Dharma teacher that you all know, two of them are um, uh, big uh, political activists, uh, not big, but uh, much of their time is involved in political activism. One of them's a lawyer. The other one was an um, NPR reporter for all of her uh, employed life. We're four older women now. And we talk once a week about Dharma and about current events and about the importance of maintaining some amount of balance in the mind, in the middle of which we were about to hang up on our telephone call, and somebody says, you know, this is breaking news right now. Mr. Avenatti has brought another... And all of a sudden, everybody's on their auxiliary stuff, and everybody's looking and reading, and 
So I'm thinking maybe everybody's looking and reading their tweets this morning. And I said, you know, I need to go to Spirit Rock now. And I said, my the the uh, the, uh, the main thing I can do at Spirit Rock is reiterate out loud that disturbed as I am with what looks to me like the most serious threat to democracy in my life about to unfold, unfolding, not about to, unfolding and about to take over in my life is happening, the best thing I can do is more or less keep it together in my mind so that whatever I do isn't going to make anything worse and might actually do something for the better. And I feel better if I do that. It's uh, provocative to get excited about it because it's exciting, but uh, not so helpful. So I said, what do you uh, women think I should do? What should I teach this morning? So I have an idea about... I had the same idea before this morning, too. Uh, It's based on uh, two instructions that I recently reheard again from, um, in one way or another. There are instructions for meditation, and I'll remind you again in a minute when we start to sit together. One of them is from Ajahn Amaro, who is now the uh, uh, abbot of Amaravati Monastery right outside of London, who, uh, uh, who was in the Bay Area for a long time, and here and on the uh, Spirit Rock um, teaches counsel for a while. And uh, his instruction is, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body, and let it stay that way. I always found that such a helpful instruction. It doesn't say if you have a natural, natural peace and ease, or if you're one of those lucky few people who have natural peace and ease. It says, let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease, like you do. And every time I do it and say it to myself or say it to other people, they discover, you know what? I do. I forgot it for a minute, but I do. And he said, then just leave it that way. He said, only pay attention to whatever arises to disturb that peace and ease. I'll tell it again in a minute when everybody's finished coming in and when we say hello to each other. I've been thinking about that and I've been thinking about another instruction that I heard from Ajahn uh, uh, Analio when he was here teaching a few weeks ago. So I'll save that for a little bit till our meditation contemplative time. I've begun saying to people when they say, well, what time do you actually meditate apropos of the Wednesday class? Like maybe I'll... <laughs> Like, maybe I'll come late for the good part where they're talking <laughs> and forget the annoying meditation part. <laughs> so I've taken to saying, because it's true, you know what? We have deviated, believe it or not, after 20-some years, we have deviated from the first hour is meditation and the second hour is talking. We talk a little and we sit quietly in a contemplative practice for a while and then we talk a little and we have more contemplative practice. Sometimes we even talk to each other and in, in dyad, sometimes we talk to each other. The first thing we always do is we say, 
Who has never been here on a Wednesday morning before? What's your name? Marsha, welcome. Where do you live? I live in San Diego. Whoa. Lived here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's lovely here. Uh, we live like this most of the year. Can you believe it? <laughs> I think the whole world hopes to move and it's impossible to... F- anyway, but Marsha, that's great. Thank you very much. How long are you staying? Thank you very much. I know somebody who leads a Dharma group in San Diego, but I forgot her name now this minute. But if you know someone, you tell them I said hello. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> not about not remembering the name part. <laughs> who else has not been here before on a Wednesday morning? What's your name? Michael. Hello, Michael. Where do you live? Oh, I'm so glad that you came. Come again. I'm Julie, and I live in Larkspur. Also in Larkspur. Lovely. Who else? I'm Andrea. I'm from Pennsylvania, but I grew up here in Sarathon with my mom. Oh, that's your mom. (laughs) Who's applauding you. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Where do you live in Pennsylvania? Oh, very, very good. There's lots of stuff happening in Philadelphia, I know. Dharma stuff. We had the Dalai Lama about somewhere in the last decade. He was at Lehigh for a whole week. And the Dalai Lama camp, because our kids are in regular camp. The adults went to the Dalai Lama camp. That tends to happen. The last time I saw the Dalai Lama was uh, when he did a Kala Chakra initiation for a week in that uh, sports arena in Washington, D.C. Verizon, wasn't it? I heard this morning that Michelle Obama has written a book and she's giving a book reading in that same sports arena. 14,000 people go in that sports arena. So that's quite a big turnout for a book reading. So we'll see. Who else has not been here before? Yeah. Tell everybody your name. Tanya. Tanya. And Kevin. And Kevin. From Greenbrae. Green Who else has not been here on a Wednesday? Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> Do you have a Dharma group in Kansas City? So the great Kuan Yang is in is in Kansas City. I'm trying to remember the name of the art gallery where it is in Kansas City. What's in it? It's in the Nelson Gallery. 
Do you? Do you go after hours when the gallery is closed? I, I met somebody at a conference a while ago who lived in Kansas City who said, if you want to bring a group like on a pilgrimage to Kansas City, I know the people at the Nelson Gallery, I can get them to open it in the morning before opening hours and you can go and do a morning sit with that Kuan Yin. Is she different from the one that's outside the door here, bigger? Are you a, are you a unity minister? His, uh, his wife works at the Nelson and has written the book, uh, Art and Spirituality. Ardent. Art and Spirituality. I was going to make a whole thing out of Ardent Spirituality, <laughs> which is another thing. We'll come back to that. We'll loop around. Hi, Jeff. I'm glad to see you're back. Who here has not been here ever before? What's your name? Michael. And I'm very glad that you're here. Where are you from in Germany? Okay. Do you know Alex? Wait, what's Alex? Alex Berzen is a Dharma teacher. He's written a lot of books. He lives in Munich. And he's and for many years now has Dharma groups there. Okay, it's clearly not, but welcome. <laughs> yeah. I'm Kathy. I'm from San Francisco. I've recently left a job. <laughs> I had a friend who said that when he retired, he said the trouble with work is it cuts into your day so much, you know. That, <laughs> so, and what's your name? Well, I'm glad you came, Jay. Yeah, I learned something new. So, Envy, there you go. I'm Kim from Melbourne, Australia. What's your name? Kim. Kim, from Melbourne, Australia. You making a trip on the whole United States, or? No, I've been to Chicago. But um, I've been listening to the teachings for 30 years, and I had to come here. <laughs> I'm very glad. I'm very glad. When do you go back? Tonight, it's a very long fly. Well, I'm glad that you're here. So now that Ace is back, we actually did this even when you weren't here, Ace. What? What? No, no. <laughs> because the spirit of Ace lurks here all the time. Nancy wanted to say something, Nancy. Okay. So my name is Nancy Iverson. Some of you know and some of you don't. Um, I started a program called Pastar to work with Native Americans encouraging healthy lifestyle and nutrition. And once a year a group comes to San Francisco and the week culminates with them doing a swim from Alcatraz to shore. Um, this is upcoming now. It's our 16th one. It'll be October 15th. We really invite you to come not swim with the Watch the swim if you want to help share in the meal afterwards or volunteer in other ways. Um, it's really amazing. The community here has been fantastic and supportive. So I 
It's a fantastic thing. It's a fantastic experience for all these people. There's been a movie made about it. And the thing about swimming from Alcatraz to San Francisco, that's no little swim. That's a big swim. And many of the people who swim it uh, prior to the, the seven days before when they arrive in San Francisco do not know how to swim. So that's what makes it super amazing. And they have an armada of boats out there going next to them and taking care of them and it's a really uplifting experience and alright one more thing to let you know this is the 1440 catalog from the new retreat center in 1440 and on page 9 is our three women myself and Brahmani and Jashoda who's often here but not here today who in three weeks are teaching a weekend called Wisdom in Every Cell, talking about that you wake up with all of us, not just with your thoughts, with your body, with your heart, with your being. And it alternates uh, mindful movement and listening to Dharma, not only from me, but from Brahmani and Jashoda and all of us and people moving around and... Uh, uh, it's a lovely weekend, so if you want to see about this, or you go online to 1440 and see about coming down for the weekend in two weeks. Not this weekend. Next weekend, my granddaughter gets married, and the following weekend, we go. Okay. Uh, we've been In my family, we've been gauging time by how many weeks to the wedding, so that's coming up. Okay, now... The spirit of Ace and the body of Ace are both here today. Ace's enduring uh, addition to this group is that he says, before we sit quietly, oh, we didn't say hello formally to Jean after her 100th birthday. This is Jean who had her 100th birthday. Yes, that's what I'm saying, 100th birthday. Listen, just to make sure that Jean gets it, that's a big deal for all of us. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Jean. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> <That's>, I mean, <laughs> I just feel very good about that. We sometimes uh, have people bring new babies to class, and everybody says a welcome, and we we make blessings for them um, more frequently than we sing happy birthday to hundred year old people. So it's great to have done both. Now. We spend a minute, maybe two, saying hello to the person next to you and greeting them for being here and saying something friendly to them and welcoming them into the community. Ready, set, go.
welcoming you. Good, good morning. <laughs> I'm glad you came. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here with you. I'm glad you, you came. <laughs> by disproving the notion that Buddhists go around quietly all the time. <laughs> Just like everybody else, they talk and they communicate. I read some research, just I'll, I'll read it to you in our time together, that um, doing something together with another person like uh, dancing with them at a communal dance and suddenly you're dancing with somebody that you don't know at all. You just are in front of that person and suddenly you like them a lot because you spent a few seconds with them, synchronously with them. Something starts to resonate. They said it's as easy as clapping hands together synchronously with somebody else. It definitely happens when you talk to somebody for a little bit and you hear your voice and their voice back and forth. And there's something that happens in the way of a resonance that they no longer look um, strange. You might not know them, but some sort of affinity bond builds up between them. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit more. Let's sit. I want to use those two lines of meditation instruction. We'll start with one. We'll sit with it for a while. Maybe we'll sit with it for a while and then we'll talk about that experience and I'll give you another instruction. That would be different. Let's try to do that. We'll sit 15 or 20 minutes with this instruction. Now ring the bell, but 
I'm just going to give you another instruction at that point or ask you how that was and give another instruction because the two of them I have been thinking really constitute important insights for me. So, Ajahnamara would say, and I am saying, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. When I do this, I sometimes add to it the words in my mind, peace and ease, peace and ease. For a while, maybe as I breathe out for a while, it's like an instruction to the mind, do that. Find that place of natural peace and ease. He goes on to say, only stay away, alert to whatever arises to disturb that natural peace and ease and notice it. When you notice it, the mind that's inquisitive and tender and supportive a mind that gives the instruction peace and ease. Your mind should return to peace and ease. Let's try that for a while.
just for a minute, I want to discover how that meditation was for you so I can give you a, an additional instruction. We don't need the microphone because I'm going to ask for one-word answers and I'll repeat them for everyone. How was that for you? Briefly, how was that? Relaxing. Peace and ease worked like a mantra, Bonnie is saying. How many people tried to say peace and ease? Peace and ease. Is that helpful to you? It's one of the things that I say to myself, not only when I'm meditating, but if I'm uh, in the dental chair or if I'm (laughs) I'm waiting for the results of the x-rays and my mind is irritable, I say to myself, peace and ease which is not saying that's what's there now. It's saying it could be there. I remember that it's a possible choice of the mind, and I am like calling it up. You remember the, the, um, the fable, open sesame, and the mountain opens. There are certain words that you can say to your mind that it knows how to do, that if you say, oh, please give me a little peace and ease, it does it. It doesn't have a discussion with you. It just does. What else? Quiet. Hmm? Quiet. Quiet. Confusion. confusion. What kind of stuff comes up, Jeff, that's confusion? Thoughts? <clears throat> yeah. Fuzziness. <laughs> fuzziness. The reason I ask is because one of the things that would, when I gave the instruction, when you, when something arises to uh, uh, be in the way of peace and ease, you notice it. You say, fuzziness. No idea what's going on. So confusing. I'd really like to have peace and ease, but there's fuzziness. There is fuzziness. There is fuzziness in my mind. I'm serious about this because when you name it, there's fuzziness. It's fuzziness. It's naming it as what it is and it disappears because everything is actually empty. It's fuzziness. Then it's not some weird thing that's provoking your body to, or your mind to be anxious. Say That's just fuzziness. It'll go away. What else? Constant chatter. I might say to myself, constant chatter. Constant chatter. Constant chatter. It's very easy for me because it's such a cute thing to think about that the mind is chattering away all the time. It is. But you think, wow, that's like that tea, constant comment, how witty I am to think about that. You can make a whole story. You can say, this is chatter. And what's more, it's unpleasant. It's not a big deal. It's chatter and it's unpleasant. Peace and ease. You know, it's like I have the upper hand here. I'm in charge. I see what's happening. And you are not scaring me. You are are a Halloween. You're really a kid. You're just dressed up in a sheet. You're not a ghost. It's Halloween. I'm not afraid of you. Even I was thinking about something came up in my mind as I'm sitting with peace and ease. 
that I hadn't sent an email I was supposed to send. And ah, oh, forgot that. Uh, forgot the email. Worrying. I was worrying. Yep, I worried. I'll take care of it later. Peace and ease. You name it, you know it, and it goes away. Just, you don't dance with it. Hmm? Ace, what happened to Ace? What happened to Ace? There he is. What happened to you while you were sitting? There was more to come, and I was thinking, what happened? Did we forget about it? Or was that it? No, no, no. Ace was, Ace was away for a couple of months, that's all. Ace is fine. It's right there. <laughs> How's your meditation, Ace? <laughs> Good. <laughs> what else did you notice? Because I'm going to give you another instruction, and we're going to sit again. Kevin, right? Kevin. Kevin. Thank you. Yeah. So, what's your name? Sandy. Sandy. So, we're taking that Kevin and Sandy. Sandy, when something is, you know, you feel good uh, and powerful. Uh, that's also a thing that, you know, peace and ease, peace and ease, and you start to feel a little bit tingly and a little bit powerful and good. You think, wow, this is great. I feel good. May this last. So now it's starts. But you could say to yourself, this feels really good. This feels really, This is very pleasant. Peace and ease. This is really pleasant. Peace and ease. Means don't get excited about it. It's okay. I mean, it's fine to enjoy it, but there's a million things you can do with that. Wow! Now I'm really getting the hang of it. Now it's it's going to be a whole new world. Now this and that, (laughs) peace and ease. And why not feel a little bit of power? You say, I'm really all right. This is okay. This is my realm of peace and ease. It's okay. It's not like oh, it's nothing to me. It is something to you. Peace and ease. Kevin, your, your discovery, you feel a little bit good. You think, ah, oh, this could be really good. I want some more of this. How could I have this? Well, I should sign up for more classes. I should come more frequently. I should take up a meditation practice at home. Yeah, first of all, you should. I think that's a great idea. But in the moment, what you correctly named was desire arises. I have a with my friends and my intimates uh, we have like we speak to each other sometimes in this dharma code like maybe we walk past uh, maybe we walk past an ice cream store and everybody looks at it at the same time and it's got some picture in the window of five different scoops or something or other and I say desire arises or they say desire arises because it does or you pass by a pizza parlor it smells very good. It said, desire arises. Meaning to say, the Buddha said, in, pleasant, in contact with pleasant stimuli, desire arises. You're just proving a piece of Dharma truth. And sometimes, when desire arises, it's wholesome and helpful and appropriate to act on it. If you feel hungry, and it's time to eat, and it's something nutritious to eat, it's a great thing to have desire arise. When people are sick, and they don't have an appetite. They're so relieved when they're finished with the sickness because desire starts to arise again to eat. Used to be an experience. Uh, I uh, 
an, an expression in Yiddish when I was a child, talking about uh, maybe it's making fun of a person who's eating too fast. And they say, so look at so-and-so there, he's eating as if after a sickness, you know. But to notice it, you know, desire is arising, wonderful. That's um, a sign of health. I, you know, this little splendid feeling, I hope I have more of it. Good, I hope so too. Peace and ease, peace and ease, peace and ease. To name it, to feel it. Not all things that we feel are unwholesome. So here's the other instruction. When you can think about it and sit with it. Uh, Ajahn Analyo, who I also heard teach recently, said to everybody, okay, let's all sit peacefully together. He didn't say that whole build-up that I just told you about Ajahn Amara. He said, just sit peacefully. Then he said, scan the mind and see if there are any hindrance emotions in it. So I, 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 my inner process was I thought of my mind as like a great loft and a splendid loft in a building, a big loft that goes from one avenue to another or something. And so look around and see if there's any hindrance energies in it. So I thought of hindrance energies lurking behind a pillar or a post. Is there desire there? Is there negativity? Mostly is there negativity there? Is there cloudiness or fuzziness or confusion there? Is there fear there? Is there any kind of hindrance energy for which tender, loving, kind attention would not be, would be the antidote? He said, look around if there's any hindrance energies. Just apply one of the Brahma Viharas. Period. That was the instruction. Just do it. Apply a Brahma Vihara. And I'm bringing it up with you because frequently, sometimes at least, in instructions about cultivating uh, loving kindness or compassion or appreciation or equanimity, it's like a big build-up. Try to say this phrase or that phrase or the other phrase. It just apply. That seems like you can just say, whoa, feel this with a tender heart. And lo and behold, you can. For hindrance energy is there. Say to yourself, feel this with a tender heart. And it goes away. So let's try it. Let's sit for another ten minutes. Let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease. Only pay attention to whatever arises to disturb the peace and ease. And if you notice that there are hindrance energies, fear, negativity, confusion, doubt, hesitancy, lust, which is different from desire. It means a need that has to be met, feels like it has to be met. And meet it with a tender-hearted attention. Soothing attention. It'll be all right.
Sometimes I take a breath in and just breath out. It'll be all right. Take a breath in and out. And we'll sit for ten minutes. Meet everything with a tender-hearted, curious attention.
in a few minutes I'll ring the bell and in these minutes if you want to mention someone who you're thinking about who's on in your heart in a wish for special blessings just to share them sometimes I think it doesn't matter if people actually can hear you or not hear you and the names don't it's just that we all have people and to the degree that I or any of us hear what happens to people this could happen, that could happen makes me feel so much like um, um, a member of the world being reminded that the world everybody has stuff that's on their mind I have very much on my mind um, the uh, the continuing awareness that my friend Rachel has died of her glioblastoma and that she's really not in the world as we know it anymore. And I'm also um, thinking a lot about the upcoming wedding of my granddaughter that's been on the whole family's radar for more than a year and Everybody's getting very excited and planning when to come and where to stay and what to wear. And I hope that that goes very well. What are the things that are in your mind? Well, the people, really, the people in your mind.
Jill, who was blessed with a very empowering birth. Thinking about my friend Lee, who um, is facing mobility issues and problems, complicated. Today, brought my cousin Barter, who is dealing with a constant dizziness. And uh, hopefully she can go to her niece's wedding in New Zealand. I often think and I often say that that period of time every week that we um, share what's on our hearts, the, the joys and the 
challenges is probably the best Dharma talk that um, anyone can give that that life is so continually challenging because we care so much about things and people and what's dear to us and because everything keeps changing and because we're all vulnerable to loss. May our hearing of each other's voices reminding us of that, of the vulnerability and preciousness of life serve to be a continual inspiration in each of our quests to cultivate um, the tenderest of hearts to support us in what is inevitably a challenging world with a great deal of beauty in it and a lot of rough patches. This is a process question. Was it helpful to have the contemplative period uh, in two pieces with instructions in the middle? Did you like that? Was it helpful? (laughs) It doesn't seem like such a big thing, but our way over years is you sit down, you sit for 45 minutes, 50 minutes. But I think sometimes that's a long time to be sitting without some encouragement and uh, ideas along the way. I thought the 10 minutes was too short. It was too short. For me, I mean, it takes me a long time to get in. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll actually we'll try it a little bit. Are you up for trying it a little bit? Okay. Not now, not this second. We're just hypothetically. Because I think for a lot of people, especially people who are new, the idea of what are we actually doing here and towards what, and my most important questions for people, uh, in addition to what do you actually do in your mind, is what do you hope will happen in your mind Why are you doing this? What do you think is going to happen in your mind? And how do you think what we're doing is going to help it get there? That's really what's important to know. I want my mind to be sweeter. I want it to be... I want it to be more habituated to um, tenderness. I like the idea of tenderness. I was thinking about it Somehow, maybe uh, over the last few days as I was writing down what I wanted to talk about, I thought we'd, we'd talk a great deal about kindness. And 
I don't know, maybe kindness and tenderness are the same, but I, I'm, I, I don't think so. I was thinking... Um, I, I actually saw an ad in, uh, in some uh, catalog that came in the mail. It was a nice ad. It was a, to sleep shirts. Sleep shirts, really attractive, long sleep shirts for women. And uh, it, it was written, the logo on it said, um, uh, there are so many things to be in the world, why not be kind? I thought, that's a nice shirt, you know. That uh, That's a nice shirt. It shouldn't just be for women, it should be for everybody. And why don't we all wear them all the time, walk around? So many things to be in the world. Why not be kind? I said, I like that a lot. It did not send away for it. <laughs> I thought about it, but I didn't. Um, why not choose kind? But then I thought, why not choose tender? And I began to think about what's the difference between kind and tender. And it seemed to me that kind we think of as, I think of, as being um, maybe a function of, another word, decency, or what we used to call common decency, of um, that, that being mannerly is uh, a little bit not so voguish to have good manners, but it means keeping in mind that there are other people in the world and that there are other people around you. So when you think about having manners, like holding a door for somebody or pushing a chair in, well, it doesn't seem like something that you, it has a class difference about it. Everybody could use a door held or a chair pushed or an arm across the street. But what they all involve is noticing that there's somebody who needs their chair pushed and needs the door held. It's looking around at somebody else, not you. But I was thinking about, is that different from uh, tenderness? Um, There was a moment years ago, uh, it's one of these, you, I'll ask you to think about if you can think of a moment like this in your life. It was such a tiny moment. Uh, I was somewhere, I was either pretty sure I was over in the Cuadro shopping center making my way through all the cars and trying to find mine. Uh, having a, maybe even having a little trouble finding it, but I had just had some unpleasant interchange with somebody about something that I'd been transacting. I don't remember that part at all. But I remember that my mind was going it over in the self-righteous kind of a way that it sometimes grabs a story and tells it, and then it tells it again, and then it tells it again. Like you already heard it, you know? But it's going over, it's rehearsing it as if it's going, it's rehearsing it so that when I get home, I'm going to say, can't believe it, what that person in the shoe department said to me or didn't say to me or whatever. I got something like that running in my mind. And as I went to get into my car and open my door, there was a woman who had just arrived at her car next to mine, and it was a larger kind of a car, and I got to see uh, more equipped for special needs people with a sliding door into the back special kind of a, 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 a car seat like for a small child but for a bigger child and in the in the stroller that the woman was pushing was not an infant was a child of some I don't know four or six years old 
clearly having multiple developmental uh, physical problems of the kind of weight that you really can't do anything. And here was this mother scooping her up and trans- transferring her into this van and talking to her sweetly in the most sweet way as she did this. So I'm telling you this story and I feel all like goosebumps in me, don't you? Here she is talking sweetly to this child uh, that has this very, very serious issue of handicap. So, you know, it doesn't... In the moment, what I felt was, oh... You know, it's hard to say what that feeling is. If you if you say, well, it's a moment of compassion, I'm not sure. I mean, because it's it's not my child, so I can't know how she just feels. It's a moment of tenderness. Look at this. Here is this woman, so sweetly, and of all the mind states that she could have, beleaguered, unhappy, miserable, embarrassed, whatever, she had tenderness for this child. Picking it up, I, I realize I have the, the kind of arms that you see on a pieta when you see the when you're the, the the pieta statue of the Virgin with her dead child, you know that kind of arms. And I remember feeling like dumbstruck, that with that overcome with a feeling of tenderness. And then when I and I remembered it for a long time, and I did not in that moment think to myself, uh, what, "What a petty person you are! You got all messed up in your mind about some clerk who said this and that, and here is this woman with serious problems." I didn't think that. I, I didn't think anything. I was filled with tenderness about her. And it stopped my unpleasant mind state. And what I had afterwards was a kind of a peace in my mind. You know, I'm expecting now as I'm telling you this story that I should have felt mortified or humiliated even for myself that I could get so caught up in my own nonsense that I would not forget, remember that in the sphere of the cosmos my little irritation is nothing. I didn't feel that. I felt stopped in my tracks by a moment of tenderness. Now that I'm telling you the story, it's hard not to start to cry. Do you remember, as I'm telling you the story, I said this story goes along with the story of the man in the yellow slicker in the rainstorm six months ago. How many people were here when I told that story about the man in the slicker? Isn't that, it's the same story. To, to Briefly, in a cross mood about something or other approaching my corner of Laurel Grove and Sir Francis Drake in a rainstorm stopping for the light being annoyed about being late to come to Spirit Rock which is another kind of a kind of a weird thing Uh, having my attention broken really by a moment of tenderness that, that there was a crossing guard a crossing guard was a little man in a yellow slicker with a you know the kind of yellow slickers that look like on fishing boats off New England 
little man as an old man because the traffic guards are older people usually anyway. And I knew this guy had been on the corner for years and I'd never noticed him. But here he is in this whole storm outfit with an umbrella going back and forth at the corner, shepherding children two in, in groups of two or three across with the light. And in his other, he's got the umbrella here and he's got one of those stop signs in this one. And he's stopping the traffic and he's taking children back and forth under his umbrella across the street. And, and he's little and, and, and talking to these children. And I looked at him and I was so overcome with that devotion that he was. Like, the whole world did not exist for this man except for these three or four children that he was keeping alive across the intersection. And in that moment, you stop in your tracks, your mind stops and it goes, oh. You look at a moment of love that rescues you out of there. And there are moments, if you think about it, you'll think about a moment So I've been thinking about tenderness. Maybe the Brahma Viharas. I was thinking about that after I gave you that instruction about notice if there's any... um, What does the Buddha call it? Um, Not... Oh, I meant... Notice whether there are skillful or wholesome, unwholesome. Notice whether there are unwholesome states in the mind, like annoyance or jealousy or um, indignation. Um, been talking. My friends and I are talking a lot about indignation these days because the voice of uh, newscasters is, uh, in a sense, appropriately, because we should all be indignant if the indignant would work. Um, But that, you know, can you believe it? No, nobody can believe it, because in our lifetime we haven't seen this. But that kind of self-referential indignant. But the the kind of mind state that traps the attention in one's own self how bad I feel, how much I need that, how much I hate that, how much I this, that. Traps the attention here and precludes noticing who's out there. There's a whole world out there of people taking care of people, showing them across the street, taking care of children, not even taking care of handicapped children, but taking care of any kind of children. I think about a number of people in this room I know are school teachers. And, I, and, I, and in my family, my father taught school for all of his career. He taught high school. My aunt taught um, middle school home economics. Her uncle, my uncle, taught uh, sixth to eighth grade history. They must have seen generations of people come through that they taught over and over and over again, and see people that unsung heroes who make the citizens of the next. Era, all kinds of people taking care of all kinds of other people, and through thick and thin. You know what I thought about while we were sitting, and uh, I'd given you the instruction about notice if there are any unwholesome mind states in your mind. I, I like that image. It came to me of uh, 
a loft. I have a friend who's a real estate agent who specializes in lofts in San Francisco. She said, they're great spaces, the lofts. And they are. Uh, I've been in them, and they're great spaces. And I could imagine suddenly uh, a a desire lurking behind a pillar over here or something else lurking behind that wall. And how would you know? And how would you somehow address that? But uh, the idea of a hindrance energy, which is what uh, the English word is for chelations, uh, unwholesome mind states like lust and anger and uh, fear and fretfulness and sleepiness and self-preoccupation. The general term is chelation, and it's translated into English as hindrance. And you say, well, so what is a hindrance? It hinders clear seeing. So it's really like you've got these things that that cloud up your vision so you can't see the whole picture. And I like that as the definition in English because I, I really am thinking if we could really see the whole picture of the suffering of people, that we would have to be moved to tenderness. Everybody's suffering. I went to New York over the weekend. It's a very extravagant thing to go to New York for five days not even working just going I went with my husband and we went to see Fiddler on the Roof twice because Fiddler on the Roof is playing in a small theater down in Battery Park and it's in Yiddish and it was translated into Yiddish it was written in English but it was translated into Yiddish in the 1970s and performed in Israel a lot. You can get a you can get a CD of that, but it hasn't been performed with a dialogue in Yiddish in the United States ever that I know about. And it is now in that theater. And I wanted so much to go, so it was a present from my husband. He said, "Let's go." So we went. And we stayed in, so everything about it was remarkable. Uh, among other things, we stayed in a hotel in Battery Park, which is right at the tip of the southern end of uh, Manhattan Island, with a view out the window of the Statue of Liberty, on which it is written, Not like the brazen giant of Greek, Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flamed is the Im- flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my land, my lamp beside the golden door. Can you cry from that? 
Honestly, are you crying? I am crying again thinking about it. Walking around in southern Manhattan, every color and shape and ethnicity of person is there. It is a pleasure to look around who is walking around there. Went in the subway, particularly went in the subway, because I like to look around and see that there are no two people who look alike. Everybody has a different color, different physiognomy, different features, big and small and old and young and carrying babies and pushing. It really is to live in the middle of a world where no one is menacing every anyone. Give me your tired, your weary, your huddled masses. It's embarrassing, if nothing else. They're embarrassing short of terrifying to think how far we've come. My father was one of the immigrants that came to Ellis Island. We had a view of the Statue of Liberty, view of Ellis Island. I didn't go this time because I went some decades ago and I found his name and my grandmother's name. He came in 1920 on the SS Jutland from Danzig. Um, Danzig was a, a free port at the top of Poland that was a tiny little strip of land so that Poland had a port. And he was nine, and he had never, he, he hadn't seen his father since he was born. Since his father left shortly thereafter and said, I'll go to the United States and I'll get some sort of a job. Every, the, he was illiterate, uneducated, so was my grandmother. They spoke no English. He got a job eventually as a, as a sewer in a piecework factory. Everybody's grandfather did that. <laughs> uh, my other grandfather got a so got to be a sewer in a um, in a luggage factory, and he was very proud of himself because he said, "I was on the assembly line in the place where I put the shell of the luggage on. I put the skin of the luggage around the shell." around the, the, the metal shell. He said it took a special skill. He said this in Yiddish. He didn't speak English that well. He put the, around the, uh, the, uh, the form, and they needed me. And if I wasn't there, it would hold up the production, and people couldn't work because I had to do that. I had to do the corners. So I never missed a day of work. He was very proud of himself. And then my aunt would say, after he was finished and out of the room, he also didn't come to my high school graduation or my eighth grade graduation, but he went to work. They did. My father told that he got off the boat with his mother. He was nine. They spoke only Yiddish. Um, He hadn't seen his father since he was an infant. He said they came off the, out of Ellis Island where the, the people at Ellis Island, they had interpreters for the Yiddish speaking, looked on the manifest and his name on his Polish birth certificate, which I have, is Retman Shore. Retman was a Polish name apparently. No one ever called him that. So apparently at Ellis Island, one of the, the people filling in the forms said, we have no Retmans in this country. So from now on, you're going to be Harry. (laughs) Who here had a father named Harry? My father-in-law was Harry. My father was Harry. Everybody was Harry because they came through with a funny name. They named them Harry. Now it's very in to be Harry. 
So he said, I got off the boat and we were walking along the pier and my mother said to me, uh, this is your father who's coming. He said, I saw this little man with kind of a pot belly and a bowler hat and said, this is your father. He's nine years old. He's been in a uh, displaced persons camp for much of that time, sleeping in the same bed with his mother all that time. He said, we went home to this little apartment in a tenement and uh, it had a kitchen and it had a bedroom and a little room other on the side. He said, I slept in the kitchen on a cot in front of the stove and my mother is in the bedroom with this strange man with the hat. And, uh, and I'm sorry, now after this weekend, I said, why didn't I ask him more about that? nine years old. What were you thinking about? Because there's a tenement museum now. Have you, anybody went to the tenement museum? It's very far out, isn't it, Nancy? Did you go to that tour in the apartment? Yes. So you saw that teeny tiny apartment? That's exactly what I was thinking of. The teeny tiny apartment. Minute apartment, and it's the real apartment. I mean, it's the the building has been, you know, renovated and reinforced. It didn't fall down, but it's teeny. You could reach anything in the kitchen from any other place in the kitchen, and we sat down on in the front room on a teeny little three or four little crowded and one bed that took up the whole of the bedroom and the toilet down the hall. So you have to go out from there and use the toilet down the hall. I don't know how they took showers or baths. I don't know how they did that. And I was in a tour. They have they're very cleverly designed tours because there's a person in the apartment who plays the role of a person of a 14-year-old girl who's living there and she's dressed like that. And you walk in, you've been primed by the pre-primer to, to say, don't ask her any, you can ask her any questions about what does your father do for work or, you know, what, how do you do this or that, but don't ask her about the future because you are in, it's, it's the year uh, 2016, uh, 1916 and she's 14 years old. You ask her like she's that. And the actress who's playing that part is terrific. And in the, before going in, in a pre-room, they determine the ancestry of the people in this particular 10-person tour so that the, um, the, uh, the, the actress in the apartment will know. But it's geared to, mainly to Jews, I think, because in the bedroom right next to the bed is uh, Jewish prayer equipment. So you can see that a Jew lives there. And they're uh, Sabbath candlesticks. However, they, since everybody on my tour was an Italian, because it was, and Catholic, but Italian Catholic, they gear the trip so that it's Jews from, Ita- from Italy, because there were Jews in Italy who made it out, so that it could be talking about the difficult time for Italians. They were mostly, uh, the poor people were farmers. They didn't know it. They didn't have any skills. They couldn't speak English. So we were in a tour of Italian farmers or visiting Italian farmers. And how hard it was to get uh, for Italians to get a job because uh, there was a tremendous, um, 
what you call anti-Semitism was about Jews. There was an anti-Italian uh, sentiment. The the they said the rumor was that the Italians had brought polio from Italy, which is not, and it's it's nothing. But that they didn't want to hang. That the, uh, the Italians were shunned in the same way that Irish were shunned in Boston. That um, and how it must have lived, been to live in that apartment. I wish I'd asked my father more about them. The thing that I was thinking about, which at the end of the tour, when we were all back, the ten or twelve of us in the pre-leaving room having a discussion like we are living in nineteen in 2018. I said, uh, my father uh, was nine when he came, and because it was public education, he went to grade school, he went to high school, he went to City College of New York for his bachelor's degree and his master's degree, he passed the teaching's exam, and he worked for his entire life being the chairman of a mathematics department in a New York City high school. And for a couple of years, was in charge of introducing what was then called the new mathematics to the city of New York. So here came this kid, nine years old, with no English, with totally uneducated parents, who didn't learn to read ever in any language, or speak English very well, but went on to be totally, not only law-abiding citizens, but contributing citizens, which has been the story of the United States. And here we are back on the precipice of undoing all of that. So I could not, I I guess I could have, but I chose not to let that moment go (laughs) unremarked. I'm very proud of my father. So the thing with Fiddler is I thought it would be a great kick to go and see it in Yiddish, which was the language that was spoken in my home when I was a child because my grandmother lived with us always. Okay, it's all right, I know what I had to say. I can't find where I wrote it down. Um, How many people have seen Fiddler in a movie? Everybody knows it. If I were a rich man. But, you know, I think that the movie was a little bit Hollywooded up, a little bit Hollywooded up. And I don't rem- and I never saw the play live on Broadway with Zero Mostel and then with um Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Theodore Bekel? Bekel, Theodore Bekel, that was it. Theodore Bekel. Before him before Bekel was Zero Mostel. Uh and now now is a man who plays a part on the stage who, uh, as far as I can tell, is not a Jew. The whole cast is not necessarily... Some of them might be given their last names. Some of them probably not. But they've all learned Yiddish. And they speak it really well. And I loved hearing it. And I came out speaking Yiddish, which was the strangest thing. I mean, I knew that I did it as a child, but a week ago, if you had said... Uh, please give this lecture in Yiddish. It would have been 
I can't do that. 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 I can't I came out speaking as if it was locked in a back closet of my mind. Someone opened the closet and I spent three hours listening to it and it revved it up. And then we went back two days later and saw the same thing again. Packed house each time. Fiddler is the story of all exiles. So apart from my particular connection to it, if you remember, it's, um, it's not a cheerful story. It's a story of people just barely, marginally, making a living uh, with their... He's a dairyman. It's based on a story called Tevye the Dairyman by Shalom Aleichem, which you can read in English. But the thing with Tevye is he has five daughters, which is considered a monumental bad luck. And... uh, (laughs) Because uh, what you want for your daughter is you want a, 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 a rich husband or a good marriage and the matchmaker will make you a marriage and uh, uh, <laughs> it's got the kind of jokes where you may have had to grow up in my kind of a family to get the jokes where a main character is the matchmaker so she says, early on, she says to somebody, she says to some man, she said, I have a great match for your son, so-and-so. He said, who's the match? She said, so-and-so, this particular daughter. He said, so-and-so, she can hardly see. He said, he said that's all right. He said, given the way your son looks and she can't see, <laughs> it's a perfect match. So it's like mean-spirited on both sides, but it's... <laughs> It's funny when you know if you're in a good mood about it. So, but then one of the the one of the one, it has crises in it. He's got to find matches for his five daughters, and here comes the matchmaker and talks to the mother and says, "I have this great match. It's so and so the butcher, um, and he's his wife just died recently." And he's looking for a new wife. A lot of people died, and he's looking for a new wife. And he's put a, his eye has fallen on your eldest daughter, and the mother is ecstatic, fantastic. My daughter's going to be now moving up. The butcher's one of the richer people in town. And they tell the daughter, and she's horrified. She says, first of all, he's old, and besides that, I'm actually in love with the next door guy." And uh, next door guy, you know, you're supposed to be, your parents are supposed to be watching over you. She said, no, you, you played with him from childhood. You were babies together. She said, that's right. And we grew up and we were in love with each other. I said, but the problem is he's poor. He's muddled a tailor. And uh, he's waiting to have enough money to buy a sewing machine so he doesn't have to sew by hand. Anyway, she wants to marry him. Meantime, her father has pledged him to this other guy. This is the whole tension in the story. But she's, And the, the really sweet part is Tevye the dairyman keeps thinking things over. He talks to God. You know, when that play came out on Broadway, it was a big scandal, mostly among the Orthodox community because of the cheek of a person to talk per- per- personally to God. You know, it's the opposite of, and he walks with me, and he talks with me. The idea that you could have a personal relationship with God, to have the 
chutzpah, the nerve to talk to God and also to argue with God. You know, you have so many things that you would do. You made the whole world. Why couldn't you make me a wealthy man? You know, while you're at it. Why couldn't you probably... And my horse has lame on his foot. I don't have enough trouble with the five daughters. Now my horse is lame. What are, what are you doing up there? The Orthodox community found this unacceptable that some people would complain. And the daughter is beside herself. And then you, you see Tevya and he's thinking and you hear both sides of his mind thinking, on the one hand, my daughter would have an easy life. She'd never have to worry about whether she's housed or fed and she'd be comfortable in her life on the other hand she loves this guy next door who's got nothing at all and she's going to have to scrape and scrub all her butt she loves this guy but this but that and in the end always his better nature prevails he says okay you can marry her and it's a very touching scene no sooner they have a marriage there's a little pogrom there's an uprising and in the marriage party the local hoodlum groups come in and bust up everything and break it all up. The second daughter falls in love with a traveling um, teacher. He says, in exchange for room and board, I'll stay in your house and I'll teach your five daughters. They're not going to school. I'll teach them philosophy he teaches them uh, communist philosophy. And it's, it's, it's very dear to hear this. And this is all in Yiddish. She's teaching them communist philosophy. And the now oldest daughter is having all the wisest answers. So he's thinking, hmm, that's a very attractive woman. And also she has got a good head. And she's thinking, hmm, hmm, hmm. Anyway, she falls in love with him. He goes to the city because he has to take up his... Rebellion. He's in rebellion with union groups, and she gets a letter, and it says, "I'm in jail." She says, "I'm going to be with him, try to wait for him while he's in jail." Where is he in jail? He's in Siberia. He's been sent to Siberia. So it's a it's a play, and people are laughing. But he, this happened to people, and people got pr- picked up peremptorily because they were in some sort of a, a manifestation. They marched with some union or something, and they're suddenly doing time in in Siberia. And here's this woman uh, says, "You know, I'm going, Papa. This is it." And for me, the 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 like moving moment in the whole thing. They do this with no sta- no props, nothing. There's a bench, so they're sitting on a bench with a little flag, waiting for the train to come in, and. Uh, she says that she's got a little suitcase. She says, I'll be all right. I'll be in touch. I'll send you letters. So she's going to Siberia to join this guy. And uh, so he's about to leave. I guess the train is in the distance. And he looks up like he's talking to God. And he says, be sure that she's wearing warm clothing. And it just broke me up. You know, it just really... I thought about it afterwards. I started to cry then. Imagine talking to God. Never going to see these people again. My grandfather, when he left Poland, he told me this. He said, I was 25 years old. They wanted me to marry the girl in the next door farm. I said, we don't have what to eat just in our farm. What am I going to do with the girl next door? Also, there's nothing I can do here. I'm going to America. And he said, I'm going with my cousin so-and-so. We're going together. 
And he said, I said to them, okay, you have two choices. Either you give me your blessing and I go, or you don't give me your blessing and I'm going anywhere and we'll have a scene. Anyway, and we'll have a scene. So which one do you want? So he went. But he never saw anybody again of his family. And it took weeks to send a letter and weeks to send a letter back since nobody could write or read. He had to get a scribe to write a letter, to send the letter, to find a scribe, to read the letter. So you find out years later. I'm telling you this whole story partly because it moved me so much. Daughter number three falls in love with one of the local guys who is himself one of the one of the people who might have been one of the hoodlums who comes in and breaks up the wedding but wasn't. But she's missing one day. And the wife comes in frantically and says, so-and-so is gone. And I found out, I ran all over and I found out, I went to ask the priest, did he see her? And he said he married her this morning to so-and-so, which is the worst for the Jews to have somebody marry out of the faith in those, in those days not, not for us now but in those days they pretend that the person has died never mention the name again so you know it's like an upbeat play of hope but it's tragic no 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 because people are laughing they're in a good mood when they leave the, uh, it's, it's, it's written as a kind of a um, lightheartedness like the whole thing of talking to God and saying why did you do this to me my horse still isn't better this isn't working well you know put up with this you have to do this also so it's supposed to be lighthearted the music is klezmer music so it's very upbeat and in the end all the people of Anatevka if you saw the movie you know it are walking because they're leaving they're leaving their ancestral home and he says, you know, my father is buried here. My grandparents are buried here. Everybody's buried here. We always lived here. And I think about there are six and a half million, six and a half million, 6.5 million people in the world now who are exiled, refuge, re- refugees, moving from place to place, finding someone who's going to let them in. I looked it up because I knew the number was high and I wanted to think about it 6.5 million no, wrong 65 million, that's what I thought that's more like it 65 million people walking around in the world Syrian refugees refugees from everywhere going someplace else and not getting let in as if it's not one world, as if we couldn't share, because so far we can't. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores, and these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door, Tevi is supposed to be in, in, happening in um, in Russia, in the part of Russia that's 
called the Beyond the Pale of Settlement. Uh, my husband's um, family comes from uh, what was what well, what well, well, Ukraine, and now it's not Ukraine. Anyway, one of those borders in in progress. At one point, it, it, early on, uh, there's a a rabbi in that community. The the community is introduced. This is the matchmaker. This is the butcher. This is the rabbi. And somebody says, "Rabbi, is it possible to say a blessing for the czar?" And he says, certainly it's possible to say a blessing for on anything you could say a blessing. So say a blessing on the czar. So, okay, God in heaven, may the czar live long and healthy far away from us. <laughs> so it gets a big line. Uh, but you think to yourself, joking aside, what are we doing? When my parent, when my father came to the United States, uh, they got help from an organization called uh, Hayas. Hayas still exists. H I A S, and it's the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And I would hear conversations all the time when people would come when I was a child. They'd say, "Well, first we went to Hayas, and they felt found us an apartment, and they gave us some money, and they got us started." Hayas is still alive and operating uh, and it says on their letterhead now uh, this is a, an organization that came in uh, uh, or somehow in its mission statement it says this. it formed in the 1880s by Jews to help Jews to help immigrant Jews uh, to help immigrants because they were Jews now we are Jews who are helping immigrants because we are Jews so it's a Jewish organization that is now helping immigrants. They're one of the people that I support. So when I said to my friends on the telephone this morning, on the, they said, what are you going to talk about? You know, The news is so alarming. I said, you know, I'm just going to talk about taking the long view that things get better and then they get worse and then they get better. And then they get worse because that's actually the, the the law of change. I don't know that they're going to get better right now. Maybe it'll be, maybe they'll get worse. Maybe they'll get much worse. Maybe in fact all the worries about what's happening to democracy will come true. It happened in Germany that way, but then it got turned around at some point. The world is so much more crowded now and has so much more terrible means of killing people. I don't know. Anybody has a good idea about what we can do? I said the best I can do is not be a force for more hysteria. That the, the, There are a few things that I'm sure of. Everything keeps changing. If it doesn't change for the better soon, eventually that life is very very difficult when i i I, uh, I think about the tevia story as prototypical not everybody's a jew but everybody has children who either don't marry and they feel bad or marry the wrong 
the people that they're unhappy with or the parents or married people that they're happy with and then they something happens to them uh, when we when we every when people say what's on their mind and their hearts you think what all the things that can happen to people that can cause them angst the only thing we could possibly have in our minds that is not a source of angst is goodwill that um really what I wanted to end with, I guess that's what I'll end with, is that it's possible really to cultivate those Brahma-viharas, to have a, a mind that is tender-hearted, curious, and patient, and deliberate, and tender-hearted. You know, there's a classic story, it's a, it's a metaphor, I'm sure, of the Buddha under the uh, on the night that he was enlightened. And uh, the story is that he sat down and he said, I'm not getting up from this place until I understand the, the cause and the end of suffering. And then, especially if you look in a children's book, a children's coloring book, it will say, if you look in a, not a children's book, it will say, and then the forces of um, evil in the form of Mara attack the Buddha's mind in a children's coloring book that's literally you see horses riding in uh, and warriors on horseback with spears and arrows aiming and shooting at the Buddha. And on the other side you'll see sultry images of uh, what might have been seductive to the Buddha, what might have really lured his mind into uh, seductive fantasies or actions. And uh, it's clear to me that the... uh, the import of that, I love that image, even though I don't really think that in actual real life it happened like that with horseback, with arrows. And I think it's a metaphor for states of mind. But in that picture, here's the Buddha sitting. No, here's he sitting and he's got one hand like this on the earth, saying, I have a right to be here. And they say he put his mind to rest in equanimity by beaming out from himself goodwill and compassion and appreciation and equanimity, all of the Brahma-viharas from him just radiated out and that as all these forces of confusion were attacking the Buddha and they met this great shield of goodwill around him, they were all disarmed and the shields and the arrows and the seductions all disintegrated. They turned into flowers and fell on the ground all around him. And it says in the stories that the whole earth was covered with flowers as the goodwill of the Buddha radiated out from him. I love that. I don't think it's literally true, but I think it's actually true that when we can manifest our best self and not add confusion to any situation by getting riled up and by not fighting back, by taking a firm stand, that I'm not getting up. I have a right to be here. I have a right to my opinion. I have a right to my space in this world. It's much right of anybody else. But I don't have to fight. Just that really the definition of enlightenment, I think, or of the end of suffering is a mind without negativity in it, free from anger and ill will, the pure-hearted one.
is not born again into this world is the end of the metta sutta. And I think that that's what it really is. It's free from anger and ill will. does not mean I have to like people. Not not mean I have to condone what different people are doing. It means that my mind has to be a conflict-free zone. I can really not like what people are doing. I can sign petitions and vote. I am getting as busy as I can sending out, every time I get a thing about get people to vote. Figure out how you can add 10 voters. Go to a phone bank. California will vote okay. But all over the world, all over the country, they can use people to get them to go to phone banks and get other people to vote. It's a little bit scary. I've done that. I've talked to people in Illinois or Indiana. You feel funny. You're sitting in a house in Kenfield and you're talking to somebody and say, good morning, Mr. X. Uh, I noticed that you're a registered Democrat. I wonder if you've been to the polls yet today. Just calling to tell you that the nearest polling space is, for you is Our Lady of Grace, Roman Catholic Church, around the corner. Please go. It's going to really require that the vote come out. That's the only thing we can do now. But everybody here can do that. Without anger in, in your mind or heart. Was that helpful what I said this morning? I didn't want to be too heavy. But how can you not be too heavy? It's a heavy moment in the world. It wasn't too heavy. It's supposed to be heavy. Hmm? It is challenging, but it's not hopeless. Because we have, what, 70, 80 people in here. I hope you're not helpless. Hopeless. hopeless. The story for me about resilience. Hmm? For you. Yeah, that's right. We just have to have the courage to find other people who want to go with us and talk to us. Okay. Be sure to talk to somebody on the way out. May we feel inspired. And please don't overdose on the cable news. It's really an addiction. Please listen to NPR. Don't do, the other thing is entertainment. And we're secretly getting seduced, and it's an addiction. I'm not listening anymore. I'm not. Did you go to the interactive floor of the Holocaust? I did the one where you go in the uh, in the room, and yeah. It sold out. They just are running at an extra three weeks into November now.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.